it was about interacting with a designer, not just for the purpose of completing your home. There was a little space left within each other and we were growing from each other and sharing our experiences. So there was a whole value add-on, which today even the grandchildren of people whose homes I've done can say that I used to listen and I always used to sort of wonder, you know, what you were talking with my parents. At that time, people knew much less. Even I knew less. The average carpenter or mason at the site knew his work so well because it hadn't changed for generations that he could teach you how long to wait before you plaster the wall or paint it. And, you know, the carpenter could teach you joinery. So there was an atmosphere of learning which is, in a way, evolution. Hello, I'm Manjusara Rajan, and you're listening to Let's Talk Deco. Decades ago, long before everyone got their ideas from Pinterest and Instagram, when being an interior designer wasn't even considered a formal activity, there was Pinakin Patel. He is verifiably, undeniably considered one of the legends of India's interior design journey. But it's more than the fact that he started before everyone else. The design community and his roster of fantabulous clients look up to this man because he's created a design idiom that expresses its Indianness in accessible and elegant ways. He has a way of weaving practical sense into objects, taking Indian forms and patterns and melding them seamlessly with contemporary design. Over the years, he's created a signature style that represents contemporary Indian aesthetics like no one else. And he's showcased his best work at his home and studio in Adibagh, which is now infamously considered Mumbai's answer to the Hamptons. But again, Pinakin didn't first. When he left Mumbai and moved to Alibagh about 20 years ago, well before work from home and staycations in Alibagh became a thing. I'm so pleased we had the chance to speak together for this podcast. I got to ask him about his approach to design, to difficult clients, to the way he melds art into his spaces, and why all those years ago, before anybody else, he left the madding crowd and moved away. Expecting lots of sass in this conversation, Finakin is not one to mince words. Nakin Patel, you've been in the design business a long, long time. Now, more than 40 years, in fact, long before most people even thought that the activity of putting furniture in a home was an act of design. In fact, some people might say that you're the godfather of interior design in India. So let me start by asking about the beginning and how you got into it. You know, my family business was chemicals and therefore I had automatically studied chemistry, in fact, even started going to work and was making a decent amount of money. But somewhere along the way, I got the feeling that uh, there was no job satisfaction. And um, I always wanted to work in a field where I wouldn't have to drag myself out of bed. The energy of the work itself would uh, start my day. And that was missing. So, you know, there was very little mentoring in those days or tutorage or, you know, there was no way to talk to people and say, I want to do something creative because nobody was doing anything creative. There were no fashion designers. There were no artists to talk to. So I said that, you know, 
let's see, what do I need to do? So I said, I need to improve my room for sure. So I sat at home, gave up work, and sat down with a few carpenters and started making photo frames, knickknacks. The only buyers in those days were five-star hotels. And Elizabeth Kerker, or the late Elizabeth Kerker, was one of the greatest patrons of art, craft, antiquity, and she was the sole buyer for the Taj group of hotels. So she uh, saw my things and said, Pinakin, you've got an eye for these things. And if you make more stuff, please show it to me. And every time I added two lamps to this one profile chair, and she said, I'm buying it. So that gave me the confidence to expand. And the time came to open a little store just to have a sort of location. And I didn't know what to call it because the word lifestyle hadn't even been coined. So I said, you know, I'll call it uh, et cetera, et cetera, so that, you know, I can keep adding things without having to justify the name tag. So et cetera opened. And the juxtaposition of all these interior products within the space started getting me a job offers to do interiors to say that all this looks nice only because you know how to put it together. So we don't know how to buy any one thing out of this. You come home, arrange all this. And greedily enough, I would go and on Saturday, Sunday, I would arrange their homes and that made me an interior designer. And we ran out of space at one side and they said that, um, why aren't the plans working out? I said, you know what? We're short of space. So first let's get an architect, expand the space and then kind of firm to do up the space. And the person was outspoken, Rahul Bajaj, and he said, I'm not working with anybody else. You become the architect. And I said, but I'm not an architect. And he said, Vaise to aap interior designer bhi So just by the faith that he put. So each time it was the client seeing my potential rather than me planning a sort of creative journey. And that's continued till today. But I wonder what the market and what the audience must have been like back then, right? Things have changed so much now. But can you give me a, a, a notion of what it would have been like? What was, the, what was available in the market? Because that would have been highly limited as well. You know, I'll tell you about the market. But before that, I must tell you about the people. Because... You know, one gets the feeling that when there are more things in the market, people get smarter and this, that. But no, I really don't think so. Because today's minds have got very cluttered and they're endless, endless choices. I mean, you know, if not in your own city, then in other places in the world, if not there on the whole world web. But in those days, it was nice because people's needs were articulated within their selves and their own families in a much calmer way. So there was that feeling of aristocracy by which they thought that when they stepped out to appreciate something different and something nice for themselves, that they were actually enriching their lives, not getting some sort of a service. So that keenness always uh, persisted within them. And therefore, I would say that in the 80s, I could take my clients much more forward than I can in the 2020s. Why do you say that? Simply because there was, within them, there was the fiber to listen, to hear, to, to empty headspace, to roll over, contemplate, allow the wonder sense to awaken within them and then respond to it with a sense of 
evolution. Today, from the time that I opened my mouth, it's about, I like it, I don't like it, it's better on Insta, it's better on Pinterest. Okay, let me show you what I have and tick, 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 tick. So, I mean, time, time ki baat hai. Yeah, I mean, today there is a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of imagery out there, right? People are looking at Pinterest, people are looking at Instagram, just as you mentioned. But how do you think our idea of interior design has evolved? I mean, there's been such a such a change in our reference material. Um, and when I look at your work, that infusion of tropical uh, the environment, the infusion of natural materiality and colors from India, you've really figured out uh, an interpretation of modern Indian design in the interior design space, particularly. As a practitioner, how do you think Indian interior design has evolved? What does that even mean to you today? Wow. <laughs> I would say, Manju, that in its physicality, interior design has taken leaps and bounds and has come up to par with international standards, if I may use that term. Contractors, the materials, the, the sort of internationally sourced uh, products that can be put into them, the clients' awareness, their travels, they're going and staying in better places, you know. It's like the stage is set to absorb everything, but... Uh, I don't know if I would say that interior design has evolved in my personal sense in the right direction because somewhere along the way, for me, when I saw it start in India, it was about interacting with a designer, not just for the purpose of completing your home. There was a little space left within each other and we were growing from each other and sharing our experiences. So there was a whole value add-on which Today, even the grandchildren of people whose homes I've done can say that I used to listen and I always used to sort of wonder, you know, what you were talking with my parents. At that time, people knew much less. Even I knew less. So we were constantly learning, not just from each other, but we were learning from even the artisans because the average carpenter or mason at the site knew his work so well because it hadn't changed for generations that he could teach you how long to wait before you plaster the wall or paint it. And, you know, the carpenter could teach you joinery. So there was an atmosphere of learning, which is, in a way, evolution. Today, the whole thing looks very buzzy and dynamic, but I think it's static. So is that why, um, you know, you wrote that very, very interesting sort of call to arms essay in the, the November edition of uh, El Deco. And for our listeners, you must check out this, this amazing space that Pinakin has created in Alibag. It's a, it's a beautiful villa which completely departs from this new obsession with gray and beige. He's gone pink, uh, incidentally using a now no longer available line of uh, Nilaya Naturals paint from Asian paints. But in that essay, Pinakin, you write about essentialism and you give suggestions to clients and vendors, designers. Can you give me, you know, a sort of synopsis of your thinking? And also particularly what I thought was interesting was how you make this distinction between minimalism versus essentialism. You know, Manju, the thing is that uh, every uh, sort of design trend that we discuss has um, actually come in as a response to the changing times around. 
So, I mean, if you look at the most popular sort of modernist Scandinavian um, Bauhaus style that's in vogue these days, it, it did not come as a trend of design. It came as a response to the changing times around and the Western world, which was completely devastated by the world wars, had to be rebuilt and not according to the old methods, but in a haste. The woman had to get out of the house and double the income. So this whole thing about the house being a machine and everything functioning well and the product designs that followed and the quicker building processes of concrete and glass and all this came out of modernism. Similarly, minimalism came actually as a bomb for investment bankers in the 80s. And they were leading such frenzied lives, working round the clock to cope with all the stock exchanges. But um, they were making simultaneously immense amounts of money, but they, they didn't have the time to spend it. So I would say that on one hand, in fashion, Calvin Klein brought about black clothing until today, you know, if anybody walks into a a room with an all-black outfit, or you see somebody at the airport, you say, designer, architect. So the, the idea was that he transformed the work clothes into this full black. And, you know, you could wear black and go to work and sneak out at coffee to buy a painting and sneak out for a preview in the evening and, you know, enjoy a new a, a boutique uh, restaurant or cafe and come back to work and celebrate your money with that. Simultaneously, in, in interiors, people like John Pawson or architect David Chipperfield and all these people had started paring down things to say that. Also, I think as a reaction to the growing stress around the banking world, that how much do we need? We need peace. But that peace sort of was articulated through a Zen minimalism and, and a sort of a putting away things in an orderly way behind shutters and hiding everything else just so that you didn't have to deal with things. You know, this whole culture of spas and South Asian, uh, Southeast Asian uh, resorts, you know, pampering the body and the uh, this thing for wellness, that was all put into that minimalism. Yeah. Now, for me, that was wonderful as a starting point. But these days, when I come to the COVID world and say three years before that, I was beginning to feel restless because I said that all these design cycles have come from the Western world through its experiences of the changing times around them. It's only 10, 20 years later that they've even acquired names and people remember them in the history of design. Otherwise, they were actually socioeconomic changes. Yeah. So I said, if I'm a designer today in the 2000s, should I be just mindlessly consuming products and adding surplus products every day to a saturated market, you know, see what's happened to the retail collapse? Or should I be using my creativity for something else and, and try and adapt for the emerging chaos? I mean, you know, world leaders had come down to bickering uh, with each other, uh, scientists had failed to improve life, religious leaders, godmen, politicians, everybody had tried. So 
Essentialism for me was more an appeal to the creative community to say that for once, let's respond to the sort of gloom that I'm seeing ahead and let's stay away from all this and, and work together and develop a way by which we use local stuff, by which we consume less and do it more mindfully than just visually. So the difference between essentialism and minimalism was that my essentialism is what is essential to me. So if if I'm a millionaire and if I'm not told that as part of this design wave, it's not nice to have so many things or put these things around or, you know, that you, you know, the visual image has to look like this. No, there's no com- visual image attached to essentialism. It's about a philosophy that underlies the design, which is to say that at each person's need of essential, what do you consider essential? Do you want to get rid of 500 shoes and come down to 50, if not five? Do you want to sort of look at local materials and use them stylishly? You know, your people at the top, you can set trends. Or do you still want to mindlessly import container ships full of marble from distant lands and pollute the oceans? So at each level, somebody could peg down what is essential for them. In fact, that pink house that you were talking about got a plastic lawn. And everyone was horrified that, you know... I saw that. AstroTurf. AstroTurf. Sometimes I think I'm a deceiver because just when people build up enough faith, you know, I've turned my topi. So I said that, yes, I'm a naturalist (laughs) and I like green stuff. My carbon footprint has been zero for the last 21 years living in Alibaba. But I said, I've realized that watering a lawn is pouring hundreds of gallons of water into the ground when there is such a scarcity of water around. I'd rather use it for agriculture, for food, for things that can sustain the human race. This is just for my visual, you know. And in a way, the water that I saved and the astroturf sort of became a ground cover for me. So even whatever natural moisture that's retained in the ground or through the monsoon doesn't evaporate out in such a rush because it's got a protective layer on top. So that was the theory. And yes, essentialism is about identifying what is really essential to you and then expressing it to the best of your artistic abilities. So, I mean, you spoke earlier about these social, um, you know, social and political situations that uh, then find a interpretation or a tra- communication in design. Now, if you look at it, I guess in a way, India's the main, um, I mean, what are the major things that we've had to go through? Liberalization was the one big change that happened socially, politically, financially. And that huge and and that gave rise to this sort of you know influx of choices and 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 options but do you think that the pandemic is probably that next big thud that has sort of come and do you think that our design world will sort of have a, a you know an impact 
that we can look back onto as a result of pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has changed lifestyles so much. You were one of the early adopters of the Alibag life, but now Alibag has become a, a major neighborhood, a suburban neighborhood almost as uh, as part of Bombay. So, do you think the the pandemic will sort of make changes in the Indian design world? Oh yes. of course the pandemic will make changes in the outside world but i mean you can see that coming from work from home and a lot of work getting done uh, digitally there's no need for so much human interaction or movement but while on one hand these will happen mainly because of the sheer compulsion of having to cope with the physicality of the situation my appeal in essentialism was to say that the way walter gropius and his colleagues searched for building materials or searched for processes which would respond to the times around similarly i feel that we should get together as a creative community it's not a small task and and see how to interpret essentialism for the rest of the world because every design theory has come in from the west this is india's turn as the mother culture of the world to heal the world it's terribly bruised and battered and defeated so i feel that the the sensitivity and the soft power that stays within the creative community is in itself a huge sort of nascent potential to uh, to exploit the spirituality of art beauty design rather than simply dwell on its materiality and that message if it's sort of put together otherwise i don't think apart from the physical obstructions that have come in life and therefore you've adapted to it like work from home study from home but otherwise the world will start getting into aeroplanes and polluting the whole environment and i am not sure that this virus that nobody can still find has come from any external source forget the poor wuhan market or whatever i i just feel that the the bacteria and a sort of virus is that exist within the human body which on a regular pattern life contribute to so many ways of uh, uh, you know playing out their roles within those doses have got confused because you know uh, the electromagnetic radiation around has changed this 4g 5g i mean there's so much uh, climate pollution that they are now trying to survive and get tougher okay so now let's you have these two elements right you have your creative side the design side you also have the business side and you and the business have some of the biggest business families in the country that you've worked for how do you translate these ideas which are actually about sort of you know a certain reticence um and a certain spared down living how do you translate these to clients who are wanting to you know sort of live big i mean i've seen some of the projects that you've done for business families around the country um you know people want to celebrate life by having having spaces of a certain kind how do you see yourself being able to communicate this to clients and how have you in the past okay so it hasn't been a difficult task manju to start with because like i said that 
it's always my client who chooses me rather than me sort of, you know, networking and finding a project and then talking to a client. So the very fact that they came to me, I think somewhere along the way, Mr. Agarwal of Emami is an inborn philosopher. Rahul Bajaj, his son Rajiv, who's now my client, they are, they are, they are somewhere within them there is a need to remain real, humble, connected to day-to-day life. The Yahoo, Yappi show-offs don't come to me only. Now, having said that these people come and they have to reflect their status, their space in society, at work, in the corporate world, yes, I, I try to bring in that amount of glamour or that amount of drama into their spaces. And the easiest tool I find is space enlargement because, you know, The moment you open up the volume, you raise the ceiling and make the room 20% bigger than it should be, that element of drama, glamour, and power comes in through that. You don't need to then put 500 pattern floors and, you know, put so many things around. So I I tend to use space as uh, an element. And scale, basically. And scale. Scale. Yeah. I'm not shy of scale. So I use that. And um, therefore, that even also the, the products that come in are sort of mindful and meaningful because each one of them has embarked upon art collections, antiquity collections, which are now really serious. They're, they're I mean, you know, museum quality collections now because when we were doing up the space, It was not so much about me trying to complete a picture that I had in my mind. It was about 500 people moving forward in awareness. So I would introduce them to artists. Galleries would come and show us what they would have. We would talk. Um, And and it, it was in a very nice and systematic and planned way that we brought in even the richness into the house. So... It just doesn't remain as um, a sort of symbol or icon of either the designer or their wealth, but it opens up conversations in evolution. So one of the things I was struck by is that you uh, on on the pinakinpatel.com website, um, so many design studios and and you know interior designers are at pain to pains to sort of mentioned design terms, styles, but on your website, it says very simply, we make our furniture from one village, (laughs) giving us an amazing edge in pricing. Minimal overheads, luxury furniture that is literally economical. And please compare. I just love it because it's, it's so straightforward. And the Indian consumer is conscious of pricing. It, we are conscious of, of these practical elements. And I, you know, I, that the, the juxtaposition of the practicality and the luxury was very interesting to me. So you have to, you, and you even mentioned, you know, sort of people wanting to sit down comfortably and people having to get up from furniture comfortably. Tell me a little bit about the thinking behind your products and why you went that very direct route. I think I didn't have a choice and that came as a blessing because, you know, the very fact that somebody saw the potential in me, it was only an inherent sincerity in me to respond to them truly. So if you came and asked me that, Pinakin, you know something? 
I want you to do up my room. And I would say, Manju, do I really know how to do a room? How will we do it in Kerala? He said, no, no, we'll figure it out. We'll do it, but let's think. Now, from that time onwards, you are motivating me as much as I'm motivating you. And I'm learning as much about your lifestyle and your body language and you know your, your entertaining and working patterns. So whether I sit down to make a chair for you or whether I sit down to make a room for you, I pretty much know where you're coming from, why you have come to me, and therefore my job of putting those things together for you becomes a joke. It becomes very easy because um, if you come in, you're a petite lady, and therefore, as your chair in the room, if I gave you a couch potatoes lounging sofa with four feet depth, uh, it, it just wouldn't make sense, you know, and um, uh, vice versa. So human scale and proportion hasn't changed for thousands of years. So I do use a lot of that in mind. Age is another important factor because it's so cool and seductive to kind of chill out on those Absolutely. five feet deep Italian sofas. But try getting your mother out of it. She'll scream. <laughs> you have to pull people out of it. To pull people out of it. And, and then your whole style comes crashing down because you haven't chosen the piece well for its functionality. And a two, you're admitting that you do everything for the visual realm. It's like trying to get out of a Lamborghini. <laughs> yeah, which a race driver can. Too low, too deep. You were talking about liberalization and all these Japanese cars came into India and they were all looked upon as luxury vehicles. And I would often say that in Japan, the woman who's driving the car is in the front seat and that's very comfortable. And on the back seat, diagonally behind her, she's only strapped her infant child. And in the rest of the space, she's dumped her groceries. And how do we get yeah. that car without any Indianization into the country? And I'm jealous of the driver. He sits in that with his pushed back hole, comfort, this, that and all. And I'm sitting where the grocery was supposed to be put. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's a perspective. I mean, it's a, it's about, I think what is what is very interesting in listening to you is is that understanding that how we live, that the products that we use have to be, have to be adaptations of the way we actually live rather than just the, the form of it, right? Um, that true luxury, if you will. So, which brings me to that question. I mean, to you, what is, what is, what is real luxury mean to you? Luxury to me at a, Physical level is space, volume, space not to sprawl, but space to grow. A very healthy communion with nature because uh, nature is ever regenerating itself. If I get into sync with nature, it will force me to reinvent myself every season like itself. And, and I remain permanently relevant to my environment. So a space to grow a healthy communion with nature and the ability to enjoy things for their own individual merits rather than by ownership. So 
long before I could get any fancy car for myself, I used to sit in my clients' cars and I used to feel the same amount of delight sitting in that car because for me, it was more about learning, oh, this is better leather, this is better stitch, you know, see how well this is finished. So it it didn't matter whether it was my car or somebody else's car. I got to grow within that experience. So even today... I can easily go to an art gallery and look at art, craft, I mean, you know, things that I like to buy and say that, uh, yeah, even if I don't buy it and walk away from it, I have grown today in my experience with this exposure. So, so that is the meaning of luxury for me. Not, okay, uh, how does my wardrobe stay so minimal? So, you know, my wife teases me. And she proudly tells everybody my secret that Pinakin is a compulsive, obsessive shopper. And once he sees something nice, he has to get it for himself. But you see in the cupboard, there'll be only 10 things. And my explanation for that, (laughs) (laughs) my explanation for that is that I, for me, the, the real experience is not hanging onto it for its notional value or for its designer label or whatever came with it. That's its own problem. I learned from that experience and enjoyed it actually long before it came in my hand when I saw it in the window and I said, oh my God, I got to have that belt. And that awakening of the wonder sense is that momentary upliftment, which as often as it comes into your day, it uplifts you from your drudgery. And when I got the belt home, it was the it was already the waning period of that experience because the I had fully enjoyed that moment of getting it close to me, wearing it. So next season, if a new belt came out, I wasn't burdened by the fact that, oh my God, it's a hundred dollar belt and I can't give it away to my staff or somebody. I, whoever needed a belt. So in my office lunchtime, you'll have all kinds of things. You'll have Balenciaga slippers. You'll, <laughs> you'll have Colaba sunglasses. Everything put together in a basket every quarter and said, just And everybody starts using it without carrying the burden of those labels or their price tags. That is the, that is the most beautiful philosophical explanation of uh, compulsive shopping <laughs> I've heard. Yeah, because... See, it's essential for me that I shop because when I shop, I'm benchmarking my skills, my acumen, my judgment, you know, my understanding of its quality, its pricing, its origin, its ethics. So I have to keep buying. It keeps everybody employed also. But then the idea is that, again, I have to set it free for everyone to use. Because it's not about accumulation at the end of the day. It's not about accumulation, and it's certainly not about this notional value to which we put so much importance. That Now, I want to ask you, um, you know, a significant part of the Indian consumer base decorates homes for themselves, right? And our houses, the average flat in India is today crowded out. I mean, views are getting smaller, uh, apart, the windows are small. Where does a person start? Like what would be, if you had to say to somebody who's moving into a, a real estate development with, with a cookie cutter um, 
you know, flat. What is the starting point that they should look at when they start putting the space together? Who's bought the apartment? I'm talking about just a person who's putting a home together. So I, I feel that um, the fact that you've bought it, it seems to meet most of your requirements and where you've made your compromises you know where you've made compromises. So don't keep dwelling on them and keep saying, oh God, I have a dark skin, I have a dark skin. Embellish it. So I would say that come to terms with what you've got. And first of all, sit down and make an honest list of what you want functionally, even pleasurably. Discuss it amongst yourselves as a family. Make changes to that. Start putting prices, budgets, and attributes to those things. Time frames, because, you know, time is an important factor. You want to finish it by next November because baby's uh, college exams will happen and, you know, mama's cataract will come and God knows what. So, so start putting timelines into it and then start looking for the fun and frolic and materials and visual delights that have to come. But these days, by the time you've sort of got engaged, you're looking at wedding lingas without even romancing the man first. So <laughs> here, you know, people get the home and on their way back from the deal, they're looking at Pinterest and Instagram to say, you know, I'm going to make this wallet, I'm going to do this and that, which is lovely. But since you're asking me as a serious sort of piece of advice to them, I would say that hold on to your reins because you, you're just wasting your time. You'll get carried away. You'll build biases. Then when mama says, Ki baby, wo to practical nahi hai, you'll say, oh, you always kill my joy. So let's not uh, do things in the wrong sequence. Do it the right way and then once you know everything and you look at it, you'll be able to connect it much better and effectively. So I would establish the work process in this sequence about spatial treatments and things like that. That's a different subject. A material choosing, if you mean. But one aspect of the space that I, I would like to just sort of, you know, um, quickly just 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 touch upon, because we've spoken about it in the past, is, uh, is light, right? Because light becomes sort of, and especially nowadays, because one is stuck in the home for so long, light has become a very, very important factor for a lot of people. Um, let's take the hypothetical situation of a space without great light. Can you tell me maybe three things or even one um, that uh, uh, someone should keep in mind when they're deciding on the quality of light within the room um, and how that relates to what uh, the light that they've got from the outside? So it's, it's very important to see where whatever size of opening you have, which direction it comes from. If it, if it comes from the south, southeast, southwest, it's going to be strong light. So even a tiny opening is going to serve a lot of light for you because that's where the strong light remains in the Indian passage of time in the day. If the window is facing the north, it's beautiful, but you'll get muted light. At the same time, you won't have to worry about too much harshness in that light and the heat will be reduced. So you see whether you're going to get strong direct light 
a soft glow from outside. Two, if you feel that that light has to travel within the room and, you know, it's a long room or there's a lot of depth where the light has to manage to penetrate, then try not to put oversized tall impediments near the window. So don't, don't put your TV unit or don't put the tallest cabinet right near the window because then all that all those planes start cutting the flow of light. So the more you allow it to flow. Also, you must try and augment its bouncing off planes and surfaces for it to uh, get stronger. So for example, you know, just one bulb, an old-fashioned milky bulb with a white Japanese paper ball of a lampshade flooded the whole room with light. Photographers use that kind of bounce lighting. So try and bounce the light that's coming in and whatever you're adding through reflective surfaces, lighter colors. And I feel that uh, there's a very clever use of uh, mirrors because uh, the word mirror just brings up either offensive images of glamour or, you know, a sort of uh, unnecessary thing. But I feel that sheet mirrors, huge mirrors, which are sort of put even as paneling on the wall, no matter if you cover them up eventually with 50% of them with paintings or furniture in front or whatever, but they tend to open up the space and reflect the light around and make it uh, a little more cheerful. Okay. Oh, that's a good, that's a great tip. Thank you so much, Pinakin Patel. Thank you for this conversation. An understanding of luxury that's beyond objects and finishes, looking at the importance of growing and experiences, staying relevant to your environment and thinking about our lives in the context of what is essential rather than what we want. When it comes to design with layers of philosophy and context, nobody really thinks about it as deeply as Pinakin does. I suppose that's the sort of mentality that frees a man at the top of his game to relinquish the quid pro quo of high city life and escape to where he feels he belongs. Thank you so much, Pinakin, for sharing your experience with me. For lots more incisive conversations on life and design, stay tuned to our future episodes of Let's Talk Deco. You've just listened to the Let's Talk Decor podcast with your host, Manjusara Rajan. Follow our podcast on Apple, Spotify, and other major podcasting platforms. Let's Talk Decor is an initiative from beautifulhomes.com, which is India's largest decor and design platform. And it is a part of Asian Paints. Beautiful Home Services brings customized interior design to everyone, allowing clients to create their dream homes with expert designers with the end-to-end project management guarantee that's part of Asian Paints. If you'd like to know more about BHS and everything else under the decor category of Asian Paints, then do log on to beautifulhomes.com. This episode of Let's Talk Decor is produced by Nikhil Dintakurti and sound design partner, Smart Voice Studio.